0: Is that on? Okay. Well, it definitely feels like fall this morning, the dark rain-covered morning, but fall has to come for winter, and then winter has to come for spring, so every day, no matter how it feels, or if you just want to curl up back in bed and go back to sleep, um, every day is to be lived for the glory of God. If you'll stand with me as we read the word of the Lord this morning to us in Romans chapter 15, verses 7 through 13. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ has also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. I will sing your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all Gentiles, and let all the people praise him. Again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse. And he he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that as we are coming to the end of this letter to the Romans, Paul's point here would not be lost on us. Father, make your word alive this morning. Cause it to pierce our hearts. Lord, I need your Holy Spirit to speak your words. We need your Holy Spirit to help us understand and apply this to our lives. Lord, we have nothing to offer, but you are a great God who has, in your mercy and grace, provided your word. Help us, Lord, not to take that for granted. I pray that you would speak to us this morning. We thank you for your faithfulness. We trust you, Lord, and we desire nothing less than to experience your presence here. That's why we're here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul has been journeying with us through Romans... And really, this is the last section that we'll be preaching that is his point of the letter. Because after this, you have, you know, say this to this person, say hi to them, so-and-so sends greetings. And so this is really the last part of Paul's letter to encourage the people in Rome... Love one another. And really, this is the point. Verse 7 is the climax of chapters 14 and 15. It is the climax of Paul's point that started in verse 14. That's why it starts with verse 7: Therefore. Right? See, therefore? We all know that that means it's arguing for something that. Before. And so Paul started in verse 14, remember this, he said, Now accept the one who is weak, see that word accept, same word, same root word. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing a judgment or on his opinions. Then in verse 14 and 15, or chapter 14 and 15, Paul has gone on to explain how that works out. Right? We've seen that. We've seen how our love for them seeks to remove stumbling blocks. It seeks to set aside our liberty so that our brothers and sisters can walk with God. And last week we saw that Paul is arguing strongly to us, look, you're strong in that area, help carry their burden, encourage them, convict them, strengthen them. And now Paul finally you think, well, Paul surely you're done. No, Paul's not done. He's going to make one final push to get us as Christians to accept one another. Or this word accept can be translated receive. It's funny how many times do you tell you hear someone say, "Yeah, I accepted Jesus as my savior." Actually, He accepted us. And He changed us. And then we receive what He's given. We didn't accept Him first. And that is the whole basis of Paul's argument here in verse 7. This this is a, a total encapsulation of what Paul has said up to this point. What did he say? Accept one another just as. Or, you know how like sometimes in a paper or a book, it'll say EG, example? That's what he's saying. This is an example. Jesus Christ, just as Christ Jesus, also accepted us to the glory of God. So, the the example we are following is Christ. It's not... Accept one another as so-and-so accepts that person. Accept one another as a BLM supporter accepts that person. Accepts that person in the way that this group accepts someone. No. Paul is saying, we are not to accept one another based on other men, but on Christ's example. Christ must be our example. There's no one else. And the amazing thing is, we don't accept based on what we think about that person. Right? It's not based on, well, are they, do they talk enough for me to be accepting of them? Do they, are they quiet enough for me? Are they annoying? Because there's no one in this church that's annoying. It's so easy to accept one another, right? Maybe I'm I'm wrong. But we all have character flaws that if, if we weren't Christians, we'd be like, oh, I wouldn't hang out with that person. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think so. I wouldn't hang out with some people in this church, naturally speaking, because... I'm different. I have interests that I know some people in this church could care less about. And vice versa. They have interests that I'm just like, okay, great. But I accept them, and accepting them is not just a, oh, I guess they're here. Paul's already, I think, made that clear. I accept them, and that means receive them. That's why I like the, the translation here of receive, because receiving sounds more whole, for lack of a better word. It's, it's, it feels more like, okay, I'm going to receive someone into my home. If you say, well, I accept them to come, come to my home, that sounds a little bit more, uh, oh, I guess I'll let you in. Whereas receiving someone is, is almost it's more hospitable. So, when we talk about this word, it has that that feeling of receiving completely. Not rejecting, but including them in your life. Making them a part of your life. That doesn't mean you have to be 24-7 together and we're all going to go start a commune. A Christian commune. No. That's not what I'm talking about. But... It means that we want to actually be in communion with each other, in fellowship with one another. That's what receiving is like. Because that's what Christ did. How did He accept us? How did He receive us? By dying for us. He put it all on the line for us. And that is our example. We can't can't ignore this. This is the problem. Oftentimes, we want to receive or accept someone in the church based on how everyone else is receiving and accepting that person. Oh, are they popular? Okay, we'll we'll receive them. Oh, they have money? Okay, here, take that front seat. No, what did James say? James said, don't do that. It's not a difference. So if, if I go down the street and I invite two people, let's say... Somehow this very wealthy man who has a mansion actually answers the door. And I get to share the gospel with him. He he comes. He's not a Christian yet, but he comes to service. And then, I mean, there's a limited number of seats here. So um, he might not be able to find a good seat. And then I also go down to the dumpster behind Zaxby's. And there's a guy there who's been doing drugs, and, I mean, just not there, totally filthy. And I share the gospel, and he's interested. He says, okay, I'm coming to church. And he shows up. He he parks his uh, grocery cart out front. The other guy parks his uh, Porsche out front. Of course, Porsches aren't any. It probably would be a Tesla nowadays. Um, They park their vehicles out front. And they come in. What would my response be to those two? Let's say they are believers, because it's really this is what Paul's talking about. What if that day God and His grace down and touch both those men and transform their life? Am I going to receive the guy that smells? Is that, is that working? Okay. But uh, imagine that those two men have become believers. God in His grace through the message preached transformed those two people. And they come in this, the door they've been transformed inside. God's doing a work but something hasn't changed outside yet. It's a lot easier to see on the guy who's been addicted to drugs. Because when he walks in, a smell walks in with him. Am I going to receive him in the same way that I receive that rich guy? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna run to run to him and say, Oh, praise God, I'm so thankful that God saved you. Here, come take this seat. I use this example because I think oftentimes it's easy to say, well, yeah, I receive everyone the same. But do I? Do I see the broken and destitute in the same way that I see those who have wealth and means but don't have Jesus? Because... When they become Christians, it's easy to think, well, the, work, the wealthy guy, you know, he's good. Now, now he's added Jesus, so he's good. And think, well, oh, the, the guy over here, he's got way more problems. No, they both have their issues. God is doing a work, but He's received them into His kingdom. He's made them children of God. And so, the way that we receive... One another is an indication of what we believe God has done to us, what Christ has done. It's interesting here, if you remember in chapter 14, verse 3, you can just, on oh mine it's just a page over, but in Romans 14, verse 3, he says, he says this, and the one who eats is not to regard the, with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. See, same phrasing. And you go back here to verse 7. Just as Christ also accepted us. So now Paul has made this an integral part. We accept one another because Christ accepted us. Not because Christ accepted them alone, but because Christ accepted all of us. None of us deserve to be his children. That's mercy. Right? And the amazing thing is that when Christ accepted us, it glorified God. Your salvation the work of the holy spirit in bringing you to christ glorifies god and sometimes you may think well there's no way i just don't understand how that's glorifying god because you're struggling with something or you're you feel like man i'm i'm a nobody that's actually better than the other alternative i think sometimes where we think we're Somebody and, well, yeah, of course God got the glory when I became a Christian. Right? But the thing is, we can go either way. If we say, well, how could God get glorified out of me? And you you continue to believe that. What are you saying? God made a bad choice. By choosing you and accepting you, you're rejecting God's choice as good and the other extreme of course is prideful well of course i deserve to be accepted i i'm known by all these people i have a name that is common and, and well known but when christ accepted us god got the glory not you not the person that Share the gospel with you. Not the pastor of the church. Not the church. God did. If God were in His grace to use this church to reach this community, and one day this church building was full with new believers, some maturing already and some fresh. If God does that in His grace, the church should not get the glory. God should. Because we're just a small group of people. But if God uses us to be a part of receiving His own in this community, and they, by His grace, come to this church and are being built up, and they experience the acceptance of God in the way that we accept them, He will be glorified. But what if we don't accept them? What are we telling them? If someone comes to Christ and they're still not quite dressed modestly, or maybe the guys are coming in in jerseys and sweatpants and pajamas, Maybe they dress like they go to Walmart. I'm not saying that that is totally acceptable, but I'm saying with new believers, there has to be patience in a church. There has to be a realization that, yes, the heart has changed, but God is doing a work for that to come out, for the fruit to be made true. And so... Our acceptance of the person should not be based on, oh wow, they're, they look like a Christian already. They're, you know, they got their suit and tie on. They're, they're in their dress, that's not super revealing and uh, whatever it may be. But our acceptance of one another is not based on our feelings. It is based on what Christ has done for us because. We are His ambassadors. We are called to accept one another as Christ has accepted us, not as we want to accept them. This is the point that Paul is making. And that's why today's message is accept one another. Now, Paul is going to give us A reason, a purpose here for this. In verse 8, he says, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. It's like, what are you saying? When I read this verse, I was confused. I'm like, I don't understand how this fits with verse 7 at first. So, what has Christ become? A servant. This is the same word that is transliterated into English, deacon. That's what deacon means, a servant. So, Christ has become a servant to whom? the circumcision what is paul referring to israel the circumcision are those of israel the israelites were given the sign of circumcision to mark them as god's children so he's saying christ has become the servant a servant to the circumcision and it's interesting has become, this is an action that has started but has not completed. Isn't that interesting? Maybe I'm just weird and I like language, but that means it's something that started in the past, but it hasn't ended. So Christ has become, not became, right? Because that would be something that's already ended. Christ has become a servant of, To the circumcision. what, How? On behalf of the truth of God. On behalf of the truth of God. Or this word truth can in this place be translated faithfulness of God. The truthfulness of God. So Christ has become a servant to the circumcision so that... The truthfulness of God will be made evident. That's what he's saying. How? How's that happening? Well, he gives us to confirm the promises given to the fathers. Remember all those Old Testament promises? What does it say in uh, Corinthians, is it 2 Corinthians 120? For all the promises of God are in him. Yes and amen. All of the promises. And Paul was not talking about the New Testament yet. He was talking about all the Old Testament promises are yes and amen in Christ. So Christ is a servant to the circumcision to the people of Israel. They haven't been cut off. This is another proof that the people of Israel are still His people. That doesn't mean that everyone who's... Israeli by ethnicity is elect, but that God so has a special heart for the people of Israel, and He's going to save a remnant. So on behalf of the truthfulness of God, God had, Christ has become a servant to the circumcision to confirm. To confirm. Or establish, right? Confirm, establish what? The promises of God. To make those promises happen. That's why Paul in verse 9 begins to quote Scripture. Those are promises that God made to the fathers that Christ has fulfilled. God has not given up on His people. He is fulfilling right now. In the world, his promises through Christ Jesus, who has become a servant to the circumcision. And how's he doing that? By confirming, bringing to pass the promises made to Israel, to the fathers. But this is a two-sided reason. First, it is to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And, verse 9, the beginning of verse 9, he says, And for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy. It's not just to confirm, to establish the promises of God to the fathers, but it is also to. So that the Gentiles, this word Gentiles is nations, can be translated nations, and for the nations to glorify God for his mercy. So, in becoming a servant to the circumcision, Christ is doing two things, he's confirming. The promises. So he's serving the circumcision in this, but he's also serving the Gentiles, making it possible for the nations to glorify God for his mercy. I think it's important we define mercy because oftentimes we confuse mercy and grace. They're two different words. And Webster's defines mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or hurt. We have a God who has a right. An opportunity to punish us. And He would be just. But in His mercy, God shows compassion. And He wants the Gentiles, the nations, to see His mercy. His compassion, even though He could justly condemn us, justly punish us. And it would not be wrong. God seeks glory from the nations for His mercy. The circumcision were chosen, chosen, sorry, the people of Israel were chosen. By God's mercy as well. The whole earth could be destroyed. God could have just said, you know what, I'm done. This, this was an experiment. No, God had a plan. God, who is sovereign over all the earth, had a plan. And in that plan, God chose Israel. Israel. And in that plan, God chose to send His Son as a servant to die for the lost. First, for the house of Israel, and then for all the nations. God desires worship. God desires men and women of all nations to worship Him. That's what this is about. Not just Israel worshiping Him, but God is bringing to Himself men and women from completely different backgrounds. You don't understand their culture, they don't understand yours. And that's the problem that Paul is dealing with in the church of Rome. It is a metropolitan city is as, as metropolitan at the time as possible. I mean, it is the center of the Western world. So, can you imagine the, the cultures that were there? The barbarians from the north, you have people from the Middle East and Asia, Arabia, Africa, all these people, and there's people from all those places living in Rome, and by the way, the church was one of the most diverse places in the world, because the church historically accepted all people. they say, oh, you're black, you're white, you're you're this ethnicity, you can't come in. No, they accepted all people. And so it's likely here in the church of Rome that there are people, uh, Jews, Gentiles, or people from all nations, they're all together. And there's old problems, old cultural issues, and they're They're butting heads, and and Paul is trying to make the point, look, God will get the glory when you are accepting one another. God is purposing this. This, God didn't go outside of the Jews to reject the Jews. So Gentiles, stop acting that way. God didn't adopt them so that you could treat them like a second-class brother. Okay? Okay? Then, then Paul's going over <coughs> to the Gentiles. He's saying, look, just because I adopted you doesn't mean that I don't like your siblings. I'm using that analogy because I think that's a good picture. The Jews think, well, you were, you were just a poor orphan and my dad felt bad for you and brought you in. Or the orphan thing could think once they've grown up and see you weren't you weren't they, they could use you weren't enough for your parents so that's why they adopted someone else they needed someone that they could love and I know those but that's how the world thinks right if we have a a, a worldly mindset and that's I think again this is. Not explicit in the text, but I I don't think it's an accident that Paul spends a chapter and a half talking to them about accepting one another. Your cultural differences are not sufficient to separate you. We don't need the first church of Asian believers, and then the first church of Arabic believers, and the first church of... African believers and the first church of Egyptian believers and the first church of barbarian believers in the same city. There's no reason to have five here, five there, five there. From all these, we are one in Christ. That was kind of a side note, but back to mercy. It's God's mercy. And what is God's mercy like? Well, I think Spurgeon had a great way of talking about it. He said, God's mercy is so good that you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of its light or make space too narrow than diminish the great mercy of God. You would drain the sea of the earth, the seas of the earth, before you could diminish the mercy of God. Why? God's mercy is infinite. We look out in space and people keep saying this, the universe is expanding. Hmm, that's shocking. You mean God's universe that He created in a moment is expanding? We, we can't even see. The the infinitude of God's creation. How can we understand the infinitude of God's mercy that has no bound? This is the thing about God's character. When God says, I am a merciful God, what does that mean? God, who is infinite, has a mercy storehouse that is actually impossible to measure. It cannot decrease. Do we want God to be glorified for His mercy? I hope so. Because if it weren't for God's mercy, not a single person in this room would be here. Because guess what? The word Gentiles, that applies to us. We're the nation's. Anyone who was not a Jew was a Gentile. Nations. At the time of Christ, our ancestors likely were barbarians. Pagans living in the north of Europe. And yet, here we are. Christ has accepted us. And we can't accept someone who looks different. Struggles with some aspect of life, like we talked about in in chapter 14. They struggle with this, um, celebrating this day, or not celebrating that day. They struggle with that, and this. So Paul, he's going to the promises, verse 9, right? He says, therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing your name. The word Gentiles there, same word that's for nations. I will sing... I like to translate it to nations because I think we should see this as a worldwide worship of God. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the nations, and I will sing your name. You see, doesn't that seem to have a more powerful effect to you personally? We don't... We're not Jews. We didn't grow up in a Jewish culture. So the word Gentile is like, oh, those are unbelievers, right? We don't think about it as the fact that that applies to us. We were Gentiles. We are Gentiles. If you were to go ask uh, an Orthodox Jew, especially the devout Orthodox Jews, what would you consider me? They'd be, if they thought about it deeply in a religious sense, they would say, oh, you're a Gentile. And here he's quoting the psalmist. It's interesting, in this psalm, David is experiencing turmoil. He's asking God to move on his behalf so that he can praise God in the nations so that God will be glorified In Him. In the nations. So that He can sing the praises of God. In the nations. Among the nations. And again, verse 10, He says, rejoice, O Gentiles, or rejoice, O nations, with His people. We see this now. Like, See first, David is going out. And he's, he's glorifying God among the nations. He's praising God among the nations. And here we have an invitation. See it? It's actually a command. The word rejoice is a command. Rejoice, O nations, with His people. Come on, let's party. Well, not like the world parties, but you know what I mean. Let's praise God together. Why? Because we've all experienced God's mercy. And again, verse 11, Praise the Lord all Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise Him. See see this progression? First, it's David. He's he's praising God, and he's singing to God, and glorifying God. And then, what happens next? He's inviting them, and, and actually... Commanding them, hey, rejoice God together with us. And then now he's saying, oh, now you can worship God alone. You don't have to just worship God when I'm around. You have that relationship. Praise the Lord, all you nations. And let all the peoples praise him. Do you see the expansion of God's glory? From verse 9 to verse 11, it's an expansion. It starts with David, who is what? He's a picture of Christ. He's an imperfect picture. It starts with Christ, the servant king. And his name is praised. And then the nations are invited to come and praise with him. And now the nations are invited to praise him alone. And he's saying there at the end of verse 11, Okay, everyone praise him. His praises should be praised wherever. It's no longer in Jerusalem alone. Wherever we are, we can praise him. Verse 12, he ends with Isaiah. And again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, And he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. Over the nations. In him shall the Gentiles hope. What's he talking about? Jesus. That's what he's talking about. The root of Jesse. The lineage of Jesse. David's father. Jesus. Jesus. When he comes Who will hope in Him? The nations. Who will hope in Him? You and I. And every person that God puts in our path, that becomes a Christian because of our witness, will put their hope in Him, not in you. And when Christ receives Him, we're to accept them. Call them to Him, not to you. God has not made us to make disciples for ourselves. God has made us to make disciples for Him. And if we lead the nations to hope in anything but Christ, they will fall away. They'll find a new hope. Because all other hopes will fail. And if you don't believe me, turn with me to Ecclesiastes. I mean, this is depressing, but if we read this, you could probably just put one of these lines on Facebook today and you'd have probably a thousand likes. Because everybody would be like, yeah, this sounds like 2020. Ecclesiastes, right after Proverbs, he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work? Which he does under the sun. A generation goes and a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises, and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Have you ever felt that way? Just feel like I 'm in the rat race i 'm get up, go to work, come home, do homework, go to bed, get up, go to work, come home, eat food, go do homework. okay, now you know my life anyway <laughs> but It's easy to feel that way. Okay. We all can uh, feel what he's saying. A blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along. And on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. It's like, the rivers all flow to the sea, but it doesn't fill up. More water keeps coming, it's nonstop, it's just endless cycle. All things are wearisome. The man is not able to tell it, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Maybe I'm just one of those people, but I always want to hear something new or watch something new. I'm not a big fan of re watching something. As Megan doesn't like that cuz she she doesn't mind watching the same Hallmark movie 10 times but um and maybe the same day. <coughs> well, maybe not. But she likes rewatching stuff and I'm kind of like maybe in a year, maybe in a couple of years. Uh I'm always there's that that inclination in, in me to want to listen to something new or watch something new. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, See this, it is new? Sorry, already it has existed for ages which were before us. There's no remembrance of earlier things and also the later things which will occur. Talk about a truth for our generation no remembrance of the earlier things. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. And in verse 13, he says, I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun. Behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were on over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. I have set my mind to know wisdom, and so to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after the wind. Even with all my wisdom and knowledge, it's vanity. It's vanity. What he says is, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. This is a very what, depressing book, right? But it speaks to truth. Whenever we put our hope in anything that is not Christ, it will lead to vanity. It is vain. It will end. Even the people we love will fail. Even the people that we trust the most will fail. But Christ will never fail. So, if we as Christians want people to have hope that stands forever, point them to Christ. Because guess what? Christ never sinned, and he never will. And He lives to make intercession for us. He gives us the greatest hope. And you know why people want to receive Christ? The Holy Spirit does a work in their heart, but He also has made us ambassadors. Our reception, our acceptance, not of sin, but of people is a picture to the world of God's love. That you can have hope in Him. Yeah, they've made mistakes, and they need to deal with sin. But we don't receive them based on how good they look, or how smart they are, or what color they are. We receive them based on Christ's reception of them if Christ has accepted them. So, verse 13. Now, okay, in light of this, everyone, now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. May He fill you. This may is is kind of an exhortation to them, but it's also a prayer, a a wish, a desire of Paul. It's like he's, I I said this last week, he he used this same kind of expression in verse 5. Remember he said, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another. Remember that? So same thing here. Paul's saying now, may the God, it's it's like he's praying Okay, Lord, grant them or fill them with joy and peace in believing. And believing what? Jesus. In believing that God is the God of hope. That He has drawn the nations to Himself. And He's drawing the nations to Himself. It's not done. Christ is still the servant of And he's still on his throne. If you want peace and joy, you have to go to the God of hope. You can't find it in a political party. You're not going to find it at a political rally. You're not going to find it anywhere. I don't care where you go. Go buy yourself an island. Build yourself a mansion on it. And you won't have joy and peace there either. You can get away from everything this world offers, and you're not going to find peace. Go hike the highest mountain, swim the deepest sea, trek the longest trail, drive the coolest car, but you're not going to find peace and joy in that. That do not mean we can't enjoy those things, but... If that is our hope, if that's where we find our hope, we're going to be going back to Ecclesiastes. I've looked all over the world, and I can't find hope. I mean, just ask Tom Brady. He was asked once about his hope. And he essentially said, you know what? I don't have a lot of peace. What do you think these guys, these athletes who are great at these things lose it they think uh, how many of you have heard of michael phelps a famous the most decorated olympic athlete of all time most gold medals of any athlete in olympics and yet after the the olympics when he won all those medals he started doing drugs I mean, just went off the deep end. Thankfully, he's come out of it, but unfortunately, he's turned to the wrong means of doing that. But what, I, what I'm saying is success and fame will never bring joy and peace. It might, it might give you a momentary happiness, momentary, but it's not permanent the God of hope is the only way that we as believers, we as people, can have true joy and true peace. And that is no matter what is happening. 2020 can't take your joy and peace away. I know that's shocking. You look at Facebook and everybody's like acts like 2020 was like an atomic bomb went off and Everybody's recovering from it. It has been a very strange, a very difficult year. But I've struggled, yes. Not necessarily from that stuff, but from other issues, the the stresses of life. But I can tell you honestly that I have a hope that can't be taken by Corona or BLM or any of the the maddening things that are going on, even the election that's coming. I know it's hard to believe that I'm not up in arms because I'm concerned about the election. Guess what? The God of hope will be in control no matter who is put in office. November 4th, God will still be in control. January 1st, same God, same hope. Four years from now, same God, same hope. So, you want to be filled with joy and peace? Turn to the God of hope so that you will abound in hope, abound. Just think, the God of hope. We, we already talked about mercy, but hope. The God of hope. That means He is the God who has hope. He is completely full of hope. So we have an infinite, merciful God. We have an infinitely hope-filled God. Hope-giving God. And He promises to cause you to abound in hope. overflow just imagine how many of you all have ever used spray foam anyone okay some of you well when you put spray foam in a crack it expands to fill it up and if you put too much in it expands out and it gets messy and you decide that you're a christian so you don't curse Because you got it on the carpet and you can't get it off. But spray foam abounds out of the hole. And when we follow Christ, it's like God is taking a spray foam can full of hope and He just keeps pulling the trigger. He doesn't care where it explodes out of. He doesn't care how much it expands. It's abounding. It is filling up. Overflowing. Overabundant. And where does this come? How does this come? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is why we should weekly and and daily be crying out, Lord, we need Your Spirit. We need You to be with us today. We need You to be with us when we come together especially. And we need You Daily to fill us with hope because the world around us is falling apart. Sometimes it looks more so than others, right? In 2020, the world is actually recognizing that it's falling apart. We could see that before, right? But the world is seeing it. But the world around us is falling apart. And if we want to have hope, we must be in Christ and... What does being in Christ pertain to? Accepting one another as well. That's the point that Paul is making. We have hope in Jesus, and because of that, we love one another. We accept one another. And when we come together, it looks like we love one another. And it actually is. It's not just, everybody comes oh, they love one another. And then, you know, they come for a few weeks, and they're like, oh... They love one another. They, they put on a good show, but in reality, there's not a love between them. That shouldn't be true of the church. The church should be a place where no matter where you came from, you are accepted, not as a sinner, but as one forgiven by God, accepted by Christ. And when that happens, Paul's prayer can be true for us. When we realize what God has done in us, what He has given us, that He has become our hope, we, the nations, are now included. We're praising Him together, and now we have been filled with that hope. We now have joy and peace, and the Spirit is moving in our hearts and our lives so that We are experiencing His power, which is causing our hope to abound. You know, spray foam, if you get it on you while it's wet, it gets on everything. You can't get it off. And like, uh, I'm surprised I don't have spray foam on my fingers because I used some this week. And I got some wet on my finger. And usually it's like days before it comes off. If it, especially if it dries, it like nothing. Maybe if I cut it off, like cut my finger off, then it would be gone. But um, maybe that's how hope should be in our lives. You're gonna have to cut me up to get that hope away from me because I am so contagious. I've been overabundant in hope, and that hope makes me hopeful. Guess what? When you're hopeful. You look at that person who comes through the door and they're dressed in rags and they smell like the sewage outside. And God has touched their heart and has saved them. You look at them and you say, there's hope for them. I'm going to love them. Or you see the the rich man come in and he seems to have it all together, but you can tell there's something missing. And you have hope, and so you're praying for that person. You're you're reaching out to them, not because they're rich, but because they need Jesus, and you see that need. Our hope will drive us to accept one another. Because when God gives you hope, you can actually be truly optimistic. I mean, if y'all want to go join the Pessimist Society, I'm sure it's down the street, down here somewhere. Um, There's probably a church that probably has a Pessimist Society inside. Um, (laughs) Sorry, that's maybe crossing the line. But as Christians, people shouldn't say, oh, man, you're so pessimistic. And that doesn't mean that we ignore issues like what 2020 has fulfilled had been full of. But we see what is going on and we choose to believe, you know what, God, my God, the God of hope is in control and, and I can continue to believe that yes, this seems crazy and it's going to be difficult for my kids, my grandkids, my my life even. But God is in control and so I don't have to worry about what people say, what people do. When we learn to trust God in that way, we'll have joy and peace and be filled with hope and we'll have a church that loves one another. It may not be full, but it will be full of the hope of God, of His Spirit moving, and His love for one another. Now let's pray. Father, I pray that the hope that you give to us, that we receive from you, would be contagious. And that we would see those who you save. And see your love, your acceptance of us, that we would remember who we were before you reached down and pulled us out of our misery. Lord, help us to live for you. I pray. Fill us with your Spirit, Lord. We need your Holy Spirit's power, not only here this morning and in every time we come together but daily give us a hunger and thirst for your spirit lord we can't live without you go with us this week bless us with your presence or it's so easy after a hard week to wonder if you're there anymore But God, You are. You're with us. And You promise joy and peace and to fill us with hope. And so I pray, Lord, that if any of us have been struggling this week, that this upcoming week we would be filled with hope. Or that You would draw our attention to Christ and what He has done for us. And that that would Propel us, Lord, to the lost, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. I pray, Lord, you would help us to hope in you, to trust in you, and to accept one another just as you have accepted us. We thank you, Lord, for this, and we trust that you will be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I pray the Lord has spoken to you this morning. Oftentimes when I preach, I feel like God is preaching the message to me. This week was pretty... seemed like every job went super late and... Um, as I was thinking about the message this week, I was I, I was just thinking, okay, Lord, what are you going to be doing? <laughs> and it's seemed like the last couple weeks I've had just uh, seemingly hopeless jobs, not that I'm not getting paid, but just no matter what I did, it seemed like it would just drag on and drag on. Um, so I pray that if you've had a difficult week, that you would experience the hope of Christ, that you would turn to Him and know that He's with you and that we're with you, right? that's what matters. God has put us together in community so we can encourage one another. So if you're struggling in this week, reach out. We may not see you, sometimes because of the physical distance, we don't see one another, but reach out. And ask someone to pray. Be, be willing to be vulnerable to be prayed for and encouraged. Because we all have difficult weeks. We all go through struggles in the week that we need one another. So, And be, be listening. Be discerning. The Lord may put somebody in this, this room this morning on your heart to pray for. Don't ignore. Because... They may come in next Sunday and have a testimony of God's faithfulness and they'll be like, yeah, on Tuesday this happened and you're like, oh, God told me to pray that day for that person. So be listening and when we finish with Romans, I want to do a small series on the gifts out of Corinthians. So um, I hope that we, we may finish next week. I don't know. I'm not sure if we're gonna do break up Romans